Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network, New Books and Law podcast. And I am joined today by Jonathan. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network, New Books and Law podcast. And I am joined today by Jonathan W. White. He is the author of Lincoln on Law, Leadership, and Life. Uh, Professor White is an associate professor of American studies at Christopher Newport University, and he is the author or editor of eight books, including Abraham Lincoln and Treason in the Civil War, The Trials of John Merriman, which was published in 2011, and Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln in 2014. This was a finalist for both the Lincoln Prize and the Jefferson Davis Prize, a, quote, best book, unquote, uh, in the Civil War Monitor and winner of the Abraham Lincoln Institute's 2015 Book Prize. He has published more than 100 articles, essays, and reviews. Uh, he also, uh, he has a lengthy biography, which I'm truncating for this introduction, but I, w- I thought it also interesting that he serves on the Ford's Theater Advisory Council. I'm going to ask him about that in a moment. So, John, welcome to New Books in Law podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So what is the Ford's Theater Advisory Council? What do they do? It's a group of scholars and professionals who are interested in Lincoln and particularly the Lincoln assassination story or presidential history. And we are convened occasionally by the staff at Ford's Theater when they want to talk about the public programming that they'll be planning for the future and they bounce ideas off of us. I see. Well, the reason we're here today is to talk about the book, uh, Lincoln on Law, Leadership, and Life. And this is uh, literally, I'm holding it in my hand. It's it's only a few ounces. This is literally a pocket size book. Um, and so can you explain uh, what brought you to write about this topic? You've wrote, written about Lincoln in different contexts, of course, because you're a Civil War historian and a legal historian. But um, what brought you to write about this particular topic? Well, from 2012 to 2016, I was my university's pre-law advisor, and every day I was having meetings with students, giving them advice in terms of how to think about law school or a future career in the law. And as I was talking to my students and then researching and writing about Lincoln for my academic work, I began to realize that the advice that Lincoln had to offer to lawyers 150 or 180 years ago was still very relevant today. And so I had the idea to put together basically a a gift type book for students who are thinking about law school or for people to give as birthday presents or something to lawyers who are friends. I wanted to call it Lincoln's Advice for Lawyers, but Barnes & Noble told my publisher that there weren't enough lawyers out there buying books, and so they couldn't use that title, so they then changed it to Lincoln's uh, Lincoln on Law, Leadership, and Life. I personally thought it was a bad lawyer joke to say there weren't enough lawyers buying books, but that's what Barnes and Noble had to say. <laughs> and so, uh, with this title, um, you're covering several different areas here. You, um, we, you know, even if you haven't read much about Lincoln, I think everybody, of course, realizes uh, that he was important as a president, and. Uh, his importance, though, is not merely the fact that he happened to be the president during the Civil War, but um, also his views on the Constitution. And eventually we're going to talk about that. But uh, much of what you're talking about is really his life before uh, the war. In fact, the war is only um, really alluded to in this book. It's not a main feature of it, right? 
Right. Yeah. The bulk of the book focuses on Lincoln's law practice, what he was like as a lawyer. And then the final chapter, I, I call All the Laws But One, which is from a famous quote of his. And then I, the subtitle of that chapter is A Lawyer in the White House. And I try to look at how the principles Lincoln developed as a lawyer helped him as president years later. Okay. So Lincoln's born in uh, uh, 1809, right? And um, he becomes a practicing lawyer by what age? Do we know? In 1836, he passes the bar and then he begins practicing the following year in 1837. Okay. And so he... um, Famously, uh, he's not from, he doesn't have actual formal legal education, right? That's right. That's right. And that was common in that era. So today, if you want to be a lawyer, the general approach is you go to law school and you take three years worth of courses and then you pass the bar. In the 19th century, it was far more common to do what was called reading the law. And so Lincoln's experience was he borrowed books from local politicians and lawyers And he read them and he learned the principles that he needed to know to become a lawyer. And it's funny, from his childhood, Lincoln developed this habit of how he would do his reading. And he did it studying the law as well. He loved to lay on his back with his feet up against a tree. And he would just hold the book above his head and read it that way. And as the sun moved through the sky, he would rotate around the tree so that he would be in the shade. And a a number of his friends and neighbors remembered seeing him like that, reading the law as a guy in his mid-20s. But it was very common to do it that way, to read the law or to study in a law office and, and read the law underneath a practicing attorney. I did a little bit of research in the book when I was to try to figure out what it was like for attorneys to to for young men to become lawyers in that era. In Chicago, in the 1830s and 40s, there were about 44 practicing attorneys. Only five of them had attended law school. The rest read law in this sort of way. And the uh, bar exam, of course, uh, no doubt it was not quite as uh, comprehensive as it uh, is today for young lawyers. Um, But uh, do we know much about the Illinois bar in terms of how difficult it was or how many people tended to pass versus not? That may not even be. I don't. I don't know about passage rates, and I I doubt that sort of information would even be fully available, but I do know it would have been an oral exam, and he would have been examined by several lawyers or possibly judges, and then afterwards, they would go out to dinner after he passed, and I think he might have been responsible to treat them to that. I'm not sure, but... Okay, and so when he starts practicing, um, what kind of clients does he have? Do we... Do we have a real good sense of it? I know he famously worked for the railroads at one point, but do we have a sense for what kinds of clients he had and, and what kinds of cases he was taking on regularly? Yeah, the practice, you know, he was in a frontier area. He's in southern central Illinois, central Illinois, and he was in an area known as the 8th Illinois Judicial Circuit. And the way it would work in those days is you would ride circuit and go around the various counties in the circuit because there weren't going to be a lot of lawyers or judges in the various counties. And so he would spend his time on horseback riding around with a bunch of other lawyers and a judge who would go with them. And as he went from town to town, county courthouse to county courthouse, that's where he would pick up his clients. And so he was basically dealing 
with a lot of his practice with small town people who were involved in disputes. He did some murder trials, but a lot of his cases were bankruptcy or divorce or debt collection. He did a ton of debt collection. He had some slander or libel cases and also things like trespass or larceny. But generally, the kind of conflicts that you would expect to arise in small communities throughout a rural part of the country, those are the kind of cases he'd be arguing. Well, I noticed that um, not only did he sue for debt collection for others, but he sued for some of his own client fees. I was impressed that he actually had the gumption to sue. I have uh, you had on page 28 that he sued 17 times to get fees from clients. And that is, I must say, uh, it's something that in modern practice, of course, lawyers are extremely reluctant to do. It's a headache, but uh, it's time consuming. It, it is it can be even expensive. Expensive. Um, and so I wonder, and I know this is a question you probably can't answer, but I wonder how f- uh, common that would have been back in the 19th century to actually sue your clients. Yeah, I don't know. That's a very good question. I imagine um, I imagine it hap- had to happen a fair bit. Sure. The, um, the, the clients that would be most reliable, of course, would be th- corporations. They're going to pay their bills on time usually. Um, and uh, so he worked for the railroads at one point. Right. And, but although I'll add, on one occasion, he won a major case for the Illinois Central Railroad, and he had to sue the railroad for his $5,000 fee in that case. So they weren't always reliable. So in terms of uh, the kinds of cases that Lincoln would take, uh, what... What were the criteria that he looked to when he was going to consider a client or a case? Yeah, you know, that's a very interesting question. As a lawyer, Lincoln actually tried to discourage litigation. He tried to persuade his potential clients to resolve their differences peaceably if they could. He actually he believed lawyers should be peacemakers in their communities. And so if a potential client came to him with a case, Lincoln would ask a series of questions to try to figure out a a few things. First, he would want to figure out if the case was in the right. Was this client in the right or was he in the wrong? If the client was in the wrong, Lincoln would often tell the client, I I can't represent you. If I do, I'd, I'd know I'd be lying and people would see it on my face, essentially. If he be- now that's or go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. If he believed a client was in the right, he would then try to evaluate whether or not it was a case worth taking, or if it might be better settled out of court. And there was one instance where a young man came to him, and he was a very young guy in his 20s, wanted to sue for I think about six hundred dollars. And Lincoln heard the man and said, "You know, you're in the right in this matter." but go out and make $600 another way. If you start suing now at this young age, you're never going to stop suing. You're always going to be entangled in litigation. And so Lincoln's perspective was you only take the cases where it's really the only way to resolve the matter. Okay. So when I read about this, um, I was struck by a couple of different things. Number one, the anachronism of being a peacemaker, because that is simply something that is honored uh, in the breach today. I think there are only a few lawyers that I've ever encountered uh, when I was in practice. And I I was a litigator as well. um, And 
rarely would I could I even imagine somebody uh, declining a case, even though it was a case that they could probably in some fashion win and recover not only for the client, but for themselves. And so that to me seems to be a true anachronism. I just don't see that. Now, it may have been unusual even then. I think it's probably hard to know. In other words, the cases that don't occur, the clients that are not taken on, you simply, there is no record of that really. In Lincoln's case, we only know them because after he died, people told their stories and said, this is what, this is what he told me. And I think they're reliable to the extent that enough people said this was Lincoln's approach. But you're, you're right. We wouldn't be able to know how widespread it was with other attorneys. And it probably was not that widespread back then. Right. Now, the other thing that struck me, though, was the idea that he would refuse clients who he saw as uh, greedy, dishonest or unethical in some fashion. Now, that, of course, um, there's again, there's no way to know how often this occurred, whether it's in the 19th century or today. Um, But that struck me as an ethical issue uh, for a lawyer, uh, regardless of time frame and context, because lawyers, even though they don't take a Hippocratic oath, uh, it, they they do have to honor. There's a tradition. And of course, uh, today you have canons of ethics that apply to lawyers and ethical rules that require you to represent your clients zealously. And even though you are, you've always been free to refuse a client uh, for whatever criteria, uh, and you don't usually have to defend your refusal unless you're a court appointed lawyer and you don't want to represent them for some reason. Mm. But, um, I thought it ethically was questionable that you would refuse somebody you thought was greedy or dishonest because it's like a a doctor who doesn't want to, um, operate or treat the morally, um, uh, unworthy person for the ailment. Uh, you know, the doctor is supposed to treat them regardless of who they are. Hmm. And, uh, lawyers normally are supposed to take on the clients, um, that have cases, even though they're morally unworthy. Cause of course you can imagine all the problems that, that clients would have if they can't get a defense, right. uh, even though they are guilty. <laughs> and if, this is a problem, you know, it, my students often ask me, you know, how can somebody defend uh, someone they know is guilty? And the, the stock answer it's, and it's true, uh, I think is everyone is entitled to a legal defense and that you're not putting forward your own ethics in representing somebody. Um, you're trying to defend somebody against a legal claim, uh, whether they're criminal or civil, or what have you. So those, those things uh, struck me when I was reading it. Well, but um, so Lincoln, is he earning a comfortable living during this time? Might that have made it easier to refuse clients as well? Yeah. And Lincoln actually said to his third law partner at one point, he said, you can turn down these kind of cases because there will always be enough other cases that you can take. And he was he was living very comfortably, which is remarkable considering his origin. I mean, born in a log cabin without windows or a wood floor, you know, just on the dirt. He rises to this level of being a prominent person in his community. He owns a house very close to the state capitol in in Springfield. And at one point, after purchasing the house, he enlarges it quite substantially. He's he's living pretty well in his time period. Now, another aspect of this, in addition to testimonials from people after he's famous and dead, 
Um, there are, uh, there is this documentary record of people writing to him while he's in the midst of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seemed you gleaned a lot of, uh, his view on the world, um, and, uh, law practice, but also good behavior. So for example, I was struck, he, he advised, uh, a, a would be lawyer, uh, to read a lot. Um, and so how often was he dispensing advice to people? Is it, do we have any sense of that? Yeah. As I mentioned before, it was very common for young men who wanted to become attorneys to read law under other people, other practicing attorneys. And so he regularly received letters asking to be able to read in his office. And generally, he said no, he just didn't have enough time to take on law students in his in his office. And a few, on a number of occasions, he wrote back and said, I can't take you on, but here's my advice. And the advice was always something along the lines of work really hard, read a lot, learn the material. It doesn't matter where you are, just learn it and that'll turn you into a good lawyer. I think at one point in the early 1850s, he realized he was giving this advice a lot. And so he thought, maybe I should write a lecture that would tell people about this is how you should prepare to be a lawyer, and this is the kind of lawyer you should be. And so he wrote up a lecture, and I think he had hoped that maybe he could make some money giving the lecture, but I don't know that he ever ended up delivering it. The The record we have are just the notes of what he was planning to say if he turned this into an actual lecture for the circuit. I uh, There's one instance that you recall in particular where um, a guy named George Latham, who was a son of uh, Lincoln's son, Robert, he had not a friend of uh, a friend of uh, who had not um, been admitted to Harvard. And yeah. uh, um, Lincoln, apparently this is a, a letter, I guess uh, mm-hmm. Lincoln writes to him and uh, he says, I know not how to aid you save in the assurance of one of mature age and much severe experience that you cannot fail if you resolutely determine that you will not I thought that rose to the level of an axiom, it seems. Um, so do, do you think that this, uh, I mean, that's wonderful advice, I think, but it, uh, do you think that's representative of Lincoln's outlook? It is. And it's the, it's one of the remarkable things about his life. When I, when I teach, my, I teach a course at Christopher Newport University that has a hundred students in it. And most of them are not interested in history. They come from the sciences or other fields and they're taking it because they have to. And on the first day of class, I always do a cold open where I walk in and without saying anything, without introducing myself, I just launch into a 45-minute lecture on the early life of Abraham Lincoln from his birth up until he becomes a lawyer. And I tell them about how he almost died and how he lost his mother and how he lost the love of his life and all the struggles he went through. And that stuff is what you just quoted there, the severe experience that he had acquired throughout his life. And I I use that cold open in class to try to, one, make the class interesting to the students, but also help them realize that Lincoln was a real human being. I think we often think about him as the statue in the Lincoln Memorial, 22 feet tall and just larger than life. But when you reflect on the, the obstacles that Lincoln overcame, I think it makes his words all the more meaningful, the advice he gave or the the speeches he delivered. Sure. And uh, that's a that's an interesting and good technique. I think I'm sure it has the effect you intend, because it it is 
notable that um, we have these figures from history who are famously represented to us in popular culture as statues. Um, mm-hmm. And we know of them because of their involvement with uh, larger political mon- movements or events, but especially a book like this that covers his law practice, which probably for many, I don't mean professional historians, but for, for many readers might be kind of a trivial or, or negligible part of his biography. It turns out to be really revealing of who he was as a person and probably um, uh, revealing about his outlook uh, on life and why he functioned the way he did once he was in the middle of the great events like the Civil War, because right. that part that I quoted from that uh, Latham letter about not giving up and you, you're not going to succeed if you don't give up. That just made me think this, this is the kind of person who was having to deal with McClellan <laughs> and, yeah. you know, the, the famous problem of picking a good commander who's actually not going to give up. Um, right. And so that seemed to be, to be a revealing character thread um, early in life that goes on to be a, an important element of who he is as a president. That's right. So, um, in regard to the effect that his experience had on his outlook on politics, not just in the sense of how he performed during the, the Civil War, but um, do you have any general thoughts on the cumulative effect of having to deal with clients and deal with the law as an institution that's a living institution that you have to grapple with? Um, and how that affected his outlook on politics, especially something like slavery. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's it's interesting. You look at the kind of cases he's dealing with: divorce, trespass, debt collection. He he's dealing with these many civil wars as he's practicing as an attorney in in the central part of Illinois, and I think that those sort of dealing with clients who are arguing with each other and and fighting and hating one another. I think that those experiences really helped prepare him then for thinking about how he would deal with larger political questions where the nation was dividing over issues like slavery and how do you, how do you deal with people who are not willing to talk or are not willing to try to compromise. And um, I thought it was notable you had quoted the testimony of a guy named E.M. E. Prince of Bloomington, Illinois, who had apparently heard Lincoln argue uh, quite a many, uh, quite a few cases, over a hundred, and uh, he admired Lincoln for the fact that he could see the point and keep his eye on the ball throughout, mm-hmm. and that a lesser lawyer would get distracted or follow red herrings, but Lincoln had this ability to kind of have what today I think of as kind of a satellite view of things. And he understood, uh, he didn't lose sight of the, uh, forest for staring at the bark of the tree. And related to that, Lincoln was always also willing to concede points. He knew he couldn't win anyway. And so he always had the end game in sight. And if he could concede something to his opponent in a case, it, it gave him credibility with the jury But all the while, he was working towards winning the case. So when does he effectively leave active practice of law? Well, he he leaves practice when he gets elected president. 
And it's funny because when he he left, when he was elected president, and as he was preparing to leave to go to Washington, D.C., he turned to his law partner and said, leave the sign up. And when I come back after my term as president, we'll pick up right where we left off. So I think I think he intended to go back to it after after his four or eight years in the White House. And that's, um, you know, that's interesting uh, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seems to me that's an interesting commentary on how the executive was viewed. Um, in other words, it's not, you're not going to go start your own entertainment network afterwards. Um, and you're, in other words, this is not the jumping off point to great fame and fortune. Uh, it's something that you'll serve for maybe eight years and then you're coming back to life uh, as you knew it or at least there's this anticipation that the executive branch, although important, um, is not the apogee of one's life, perhaps. Right. And you have a number of examples of, of presidents in the 19th century who go on to get back into politics. I mean, you have John Quincy Adams go back into the House of Representatives after he's president. You have Andrew Johnson go back into the Senate. Lincoln was a very shut-mouthed man. He was probably not going to write a best-selling memoir after his time as president. So he was going to have to have some sort of income. And I think in his mind, he would do his his civic duty, serve as president, hopefully bring the nation back together, and then he'd have to make money for the rest of his, his life. And so this would be how he would do it. And as far as we know, he was in decent health uh, uh, throughout, right? Yes, there are debates about whether or not he suffered from certain diseases. I think one is Marfan's disease, which I'm always a little skeptical of when people try to diagnose historic figures 150 years after they've died. But one of the things that's fascinating is with Lincoln is if you look at the photos of him, beginning, say, at the photo in February of 1860 when he delivers the famous speech at the Cooper Institute in New York, and if you follow the pictures of him taken throughout the war until the very last ones in the spring of 1865, you can see just how much the war and the presidency have aged him. It's it's really unbelievable. I mean, you see it in modern presidents. You saw it in George W. Bush or in Barack Obama, how much they aged in their eight years in office. I think Lincoln aged far more in his four years than they did in their eight. And it makes sense. So his, his health was probably not what it was in 1865, what it had been in 1860 when he was first elected. But he still was in fairly good health as far as we know. Right. And of course, it, now nowadays people live much longer because of health care, but um, he's only 56 when he dies. Right. And he looks, it, it, somebody with that appearance in the spring of 1865, they look like they're in their mid-70s. Um, to me. And, uh, it's, uh, it really is. I think you're, uh, quite right to note, you know, this is, these photos are revealing of the stress and strain of the, um, of the, uh, the office and the war. Ian, I lost you for about 20 seconds. I got the same thing about my connection has failed. Okay. We are still recording. So we'll just go ahead and pick up. Okay. So can you just restate what you just said? Yeah. Um, okay. I'll start here. Three, two, one. It's notable. Uh, I think you're right 
that the war really had a significant effect on him, uh, on his uh, physical state. Um, he's only 56 when he dies, uh, which he doesn't look at. He looks like someone in his mid seventies. Um, and so it is notable. I, uh, it's funny you mentioned the pictures because I had actually put all the, uh, or a series of about four different photos I could find from each year of the war. And there's this progression. Um, I'd use this in the class to describe, uh, uh, the effect of the war on Lincoln at one point. And um, it was pronounced uh, and the students who have seen Lincoln and they've probably seen these photos. They, they did note that it, yeah, he, he really does look like he's been affected by something over the last four years of his presidency. So um, in regard to the law as a system of governance and something that has a moral worth, um, do you think that Lincoln's law practice impacted his understanding, for example, of the Constitution? Sure, absolutely. I think for Lincoln, learning to think like a lawyer was central to who he was as a politician and who he was as a president. Lincoln had a very logical way of thinking, a very rational way of thinking about problems that were in front of him. And, and in reality, he thought like a lawyer, he thought he took that training and that knowledge and then applied it to the problems that he faced when he was dealing with constitutional issues as president. And of course, you end uh, your book with an account of Lincoln's uh, Lyceum speech from 1838. So can you explain the importance of that speech and how uh, his outlook on law affected it? Yeah, so I mentioned a little bit ago how I do the cold open in class, and I leave them off in 1838. And I tell them the reason I, I do this is that I want my students to realize the very next class they're going to be reading the Lyceum Address. And so that I want them to think about Lincoln as a person when they read this really remarkable speech. And so Lincoln is in Springfield in 1838, and there's not a lot to do out in that part of the country in those days. And so young men would get together and deliver speeches to each other. And Lincoln delivers this speech called On the Perpetuation of Our Political Institutions. And he opens up by explaining that America has an incredible land and an incredible political system that's more conducive to protecting political and religious liberty than any other in the history of the world. But he argues that Americans are, are at a, a point where they might lose what they have. And he points out that there's mob violence going on throughout the country where mobs are lynching white gamblers and free black men and abolitionist newspapers and others. And that mobs are basically taking the law into their own hands. And in doing so, they run the risk of destroying this political system that's been given to Americans. And his ultimate or one of his arguments is that Americans are taking for granted the system that they have because they didn't have to earn it. They didn't have to fight for it. They didn't have to create it. It was given to them. And as a consequence, they are, they're running roughshod over the law and they're not, they're not valuing it the way that, that they should. And so he, he argues that Americans need to remember the sacrifices of those who came before them, who, who gave us this system, 
and that Americans need to ultimately maintain reverence for the law. If a law is bad, you should change it, but you should go through the, the proper channels to do that. And you should teach your children and your children's children to, to value the law because the law will ultimately be the source of protection for individuals, for individual liberty, for property rights, for free speech rights. If, if we don't value the law, people will, more and more people will become lawbreakers. And then those rights that we hold dear will eventually disappear from us. And so um, in terms of his uh, jurisprudential outlook. He's a lawyer. He could have easily been a judge. Uh, I was always struck by, um, not just in relation to legal or constitutional issues, but just in general, everything I've read about Lincoln. And I'm a, I'm very much an amateur uh, uh, fan of Lincoln, all things Lincoln. Um, it seems to me he had a great deal of prudence and wisdom. And um, so on the one hand, he might have been a great uh, living constitution judge. But on the other hand, uh, he seems to be something of what today we often refer to as an originalist or maybe a textualist. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts based on his um, application? Uh, and this goes beyond your book, really. It's about his interpretation of the constitution. Famously, of course, he discusses some of this in the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, but uh, how would we characterize his jurisprudence? Well, first I'll say that riding the circuit, Lincoln did sit in for his friend David Davis as a judge in a number of cases. I I think several hundred cases over the course of his career, he sat in as a judge. So he did take that role, although he never ran for office as a judge. But in terms of thinking about his constitutional interpretation, I, th- I think Lincoln was a textualist. I think Lincoln, no matter what the issue as president, when he had a constitutional issue confront him, he tried to root his argument in the text of the Constitution, in some clause somewhere. So I wrote a book a number of years ago called Abraham Lincoln and Treason in the Civil War, The Trials of John Merriman. And it looked at the habeas corpus issue and the civil liberties issue. And at the beginning of the Civil War, Lincoln suspended the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus because he had a rebellion on his hands. And the Constitution in Article 1, Section 9 says the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. And so from Lincoln's perspective, he had a rebellion on his hands. Public safety required him to take this step or required someone to take this step. And the Constitution was actually silent as to who possessed the power. It just said this power exists when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. And so, you know, most legal authorities at the time believed that that was a legislative power because it was in Article 1. But from Lincoln's perspective, Article 1 didn't state it was a legislative power. And if you read sections one, uh, Article 1, Sections 9 and 10, they don't specify that they are congressional powers. In fact, Section 10 is about the states. And so I think Lincoln had a plausible argument to make that I'm rooting my argument in the text and, and this is what I'm going to do. Same thing with emancipation. He, he roots his power to emancipate slaves in Article 2 of the Constitution. He says that the Constitution invests me with certain powers as commander-in-chief. And one of those powers is to preserve the nation, to preserve the Constitution. And as commander-in-chief, I need to do what is necessary 
militarily to do that. And so by 1863, he argues that freeing the slaves is something that he can do as commander in chief. Now, again, as with any other constitutional argument, you can argue with it, whether or not it's really correct constitutionally, but he always rooted these sort of arguments in some text in the constitution. All right. The book is Lincoln on Law, Leadership, and Life. It's published by Sourcebooks, and we've been joined today by its author, Jonathan W. White. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Law podcast. Thank you. Thank you.